We'll turn with me now to Ezekiel chapter 36. Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Ezekiel 36. I'm going to read verses 22 through 27. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 27. There are many throughout the church experience that you could speak to about the valley of dry bones in chapter 37. But chapter 36 is one of those ones where you say, what's in that chapter again? And yet it provides a very important context for what is happening in chapter 37. This morning we'll also see that it provides an important context for what is happening in Acts 19, our sermon passage. But before we turn there, let's read together Ezekiel 36, 22 through 27. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. The nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Amen. Have you ever noticed how extraordinarily unexpected the promises of God are? God sets up these promises with the words, I will prove that I am holy. I will demonstrate my holiness to you. When you think about God flexing his holiness muscles, you know, what passages do you think of? Do you think of him shaking the foundations of the earth on Mount Sinai? Do you think of the windstorm and the fires? Do you think of this great and awesome display of the majesty of God in the earth? God says here in Ezekiel 36, I will prove to the whole world that I am a holy God. Here's how I'll do it. I'll bring you back from exile. I will bring you into sweet fellowship with me. I will clean you of all your sin and forgive you. I will give you my spirit and make you obedient to my law. This is how God vindicates his holiness, by saving us through grace. With this in mind, turn over in your Bibles to Acts 19. I'm going to read this morning from Acts 19. A few weeks ago, after I had spoken with Don and Laura about scheduling this baptism, I took up preparation for this sermon, Acts 19. And I was struggling with, you know, how did I want to approach this? What did I want to say? 
And all of a sudden, it hit me like a thunderbolt. Hey, this is about baptism. And I just got really excited. (laughs) Acts chapter 19. We're going to begin reading in verse 1, and we're going to read down through verse 20. Acts 19, verses 1 through 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. In finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the spirit in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out from them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, the Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Amen and amen. Tom and I have taken up walking together on Friday afternoons. It's good to get the fresh air. It's good to get the exercise. It's good to have the friendship, the fellowship. I heartily commend it to you, brothers and sisters, in the midst of a pandemic, walking together is an excellent activity, especially here in springtime as the weather starts to turn nice. Now, of course, this last Friday, 
It was very much as it is today. The clouds were thick and gray and hanging low over the sky, and there was word in the weather report that we might get rain. So Tom and I discussed briefly before departing out whether we should bring an umbrella or a raincoat. We both decided in the end that we would not invest any hand space to such protection. We decided with a laugh, humans dry. Indeed, I'm sure some of you have had that experience. You're walking through the downpour, only to find a few hours later that you're dry. Maybe some of you have gone swimming. I hope all of you have had a bath or a shower. And you have perhaps noticed humans dry. I certainly, as a cyclist, have noticed that I can pass through puddles. I can ride through rainstorms. If there's enough sun and enough wind, I'll be dry by the time I get home. Humans dry. This is an important observation because I think it will be no great surprise to you this morning that Emmett's skin is dry. How many of you still have the water of baptism on your skin? Indeed, it is our great hope that there is something far more permanent and lasting than the words that evaporated with a vibration in your eardrum or the water that evaporated from your skin with the brush of the breeze. My friends, we believe that something spiritual and real happens We believe that the Spirit of Christ is the source of new life for those who believe. This is exhibited and held forth in the sacrament of baptism. It is indeed the gospel truth for us this morning in Acts 19. A very timely text that draws to our hearts and to our minds this morning the truth that Jesus' Spirit gives you new life. So please, follow Jesus. My friends, Jesus' Spirit gives you new life. Follow Jesus. Let's think about this a little bit this morning and notice in the very beginning of our chapter, chapter 19, verse 1, that in Apollos' absence, Paul comes to Ephesus and finds some disciples. Apollos, of course, has passed over to Corinth, where he has taken up the ministry that Paul began years before. Paul, on the other hand, had completed his second missionary journey in Antioch, where he rested. Then he went up into Galatia and Phrygia, visiting those churches of his first missionary journey, strengthening them in the grace of God. At last, he has come to the coast, the very western coast of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. There he is in the great city of Ephesus, which he had visited before but could only stay a little while. He had left them with the promise, I will come back. Here in chapter 19, verse 1, he is keeping that promise. He has come back. But here now he finds disciples. Luke only says that they are disciples. And yet this is a noun that begs a prepositional phrase. Disciples of what? It's like the problem with Disney. They say, just believe. And you have to ask the question, believe what? In like manner, 
We are told here that they are disciples. But we have to discern disciples of who? You see, as humans, we are all disciples. We follow someone. We mimic someone. As humans, we irresistibly follow the pattern of discipleship, seeking to become someone else. It is actually a striking feature. It's kind of a pastor geek thing. But I actually enjoy watching preachers and thinking, I know who taught you to preach. Because you can see the little mannerisms, the little expressions, the little gestures of the pastors they are trying to emulate. If you guys know the men who taught me, if you knew the Rob Gateses, the Andrew Quigleys, if you knew the Rick Gambles, the Bruce Backenstows, the Bruce Parnells, the Kit Swartzes, if you had seen these men preach, you could look at me and say, ah, that's where he gets that pause. That's where he gets that, dy- that dynamic movement. That's where he gets that expression, that pronunciation. We are creatures of mimicry. We are all disciples. The question is, disciples of who? In the text, these disciples are noted as disciples of John. They admit in verse 2 that they had not received the Holy Spirit nor even heard of the Holy Spirit. They are both ignorant of the Holy Spirit and without Him in their lives. Confused, Paul says, then into what were you baptized? And they say in verse 3, into John's baptism. That is to say that they are baptized into John and into John's name. In this way, they have dreadfully misunderstood what John himself was trying to do. They themselves became disciples of John, even though John labored to make disciples of Christ. Remember what John said? There is one who comes after me. Him you must follow. But here, these are men who have followed John and not Jesus. Paul himself points this out in verse 4. John baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying you must be ready for the coming of the Christ. You must believe in him, not me. These disciples have somehow missed this gospel entirely and have believed into John instead of into Jesus. My friends, this is a far too easy mistake. For us to make. Let me give you one illustration. It's actually kind of funny. Both Martin Luther and John Calvin put explicitly in their writings that they abhorred the thought of anyone being called by their name. And here we have the Lutheran Church and the Calvinists. These men explicitly decried using their name to mark those who followed them and said, no, follow Christ. Who is Luther that you should take his name? Indeed, they would say with the Apostle Paul, as he said in 1 Corinthians, what is Paul? What is Apollos? What is Luther? What is Calvin? No, is not Christ all and in all? Colossians chapter 3. My friends, you must follow Jesus. We are to be Jesus' disciples. 
This is what we are to be. Who are you following today? Who do you wish to be? Who do you mimic? Who do you copy? Even the Apostle Paul said, copy me as I copy Christ. Let us be followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus. To help us do this, the rest of this story lays out for us the essential features of a disciple, of who it is that follows Christ and walks the road of Christ. And it begins first with baptism. Followers of Jesus begin their following of Jesus with baptism. Notice this in verse 5. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. You see, the Apostle Paul takes up water in his hands and he sets it on the heads of these disciples and he baptizes them in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is, he sets them apart in the triune name of the Lord Jesus, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as Christ himself commanded in Matthew 28. This brings them then dramatically in in an exhibition of the work of the Spirit. In verse 6, while Paul's hands are still on their heads, and the water droplets are still transferring from his palms and fingers to their faces, the Spirit comes down like a bolt and is evident in their lives. This is the same as we saw in Jesus' baptism. When he came up out of the Jordan, the Spirit descended like a dove. And indeed, the voice said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. But we see it even more closely in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem on that beautiful day of Pentecost. When the Spirit was poured out on the church, we see it again in Acts chapter 8 in Samaria. When the Spirit was poured out on the church, we see it a third time in Acts chapter 10 when the Spirit is poured out on the church in the house of Cornelius. Here for the fourth and final time, the Spirit is poured out in the midst of a baptism, bringing forth both tongues and prophecy as proof of His presence. But my friends, these two signs of the Spirit belong to the Apostles' era. They do not continue with us. But rather, the evidences that we look for today are in fact a credible profession of faith. The evidence of the Spirit is yet in our mouths, not with tongues or prophecy, but with a confession. I trust Christ. This is the fruit for which we are longing with our baptisms. This is the improvement of the baptisms for which our hearts long. This is what we should be looking for among our children. Evidence of this new identity, this new spirit. Who are you? To whom do you really belong? There's an extraordinary experience where someone who was born with the last name of Smith, this day took the last name of God Most High and was marked publicly as not merely a son of Adam, but indeed belonging as a child of God to the family of grace. 
There is a new identity for us in baptism. Baptism exhibits, applies to us, the new reality. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone, the new has come. There is a new spirit within you as promised in Ezekiel 36. You are not your own, you were bought with a price. It is no longer you who live, it is Christ who lives in you. Martin Luther was very famous for his intense times of temptation. Do you know what one of his favorite weapons was? Two words in Latin. Baptistotos sum. I am baptized. In the throes of temptation, with sin crouching at his door, longing to master him, he would cry out as if lifting up a shield, I am baptized. I am not my own. I was crucified with Christ. There is a new spirit within me. This, my friends, is a mighty weapon against indwelling sin. That we lift our union with Christ as was exhibited to us in our baptism. That our baptism should bring forth a profession of faith. I'm tempted to speak to Emmett directly, but I'll speak to all the baptized children instead. Make good your baptism. Profess faith according to the claims of Christ on your life. My friends, you have received this grace of water in the name that you might exercise faith in the one you have received. This is the calling of baptism, the command of baptism, that you should not simply receive baptism and be done, but that you should see your baptism as the beginning of a life with Christ, to follow Christ. Discipleship begins with baptism. But if you remember the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus said to us that we make disciples with two tools. First, with baptism. Second, with teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. My friends, we not only begin the journey of discipleship, we not only begin to follow Christ, to mimic Him with baptism, we persist in it, we grow in it, we make good our baptism through the instruction of the word. This is evident in our text beginning in verse 8. Paul goes up to Ephesus. And there in the synagogue, until he's kicked out, then he goes to the hall of Tyrannus. Paul preaches. He preaches the kingdom of God. He preaches the way of Christ. He preaches daily and he preaches for two years. Indeed, over in Acts chapter 20, verse 20, he'll say that it's actually three years in total. And that it was not only in public, but in Acts 20, 20, he says that it was house to house. It was private and it was personal. Notice the importance of teaching to the disciples' life. Not only do we begin our discipleship with baptism, but we improve our baptism with the instructions of the Scriptures. It is so essential for our faith that we should be taught. But notice also how we are to be taught. Paul 
reasons, and persuades. Paul is no boring lecturer. Paul is no idle babbler. Paul appeals to the mind with reason. He gives solid answers. He preaches the truth with clarity, with conviction. But Paul also persuades. He appeals to the heart. He draws out the emotion. He embeds it with compulsion and with intensity. This is the teaching our disciples and our children need. Something that weds deep thought with deep feeling. This should be an intense desire of us that we should have true knowledge with fervent affection. Notice then the teaching having this method, both reasoning and persuading, has this content that is the kingdom. The kingdom of God, the supremacy of Christ, obedience to Jesus Christ. We who have been marked as a new creation are now called to live in that new life. But notice also, friends, for our sake this morning especially, that this teaching about the kingdom is given to us daily and enduringly. Paul teaches daily the kingdom of Christ, the coming of God's power, the supremacy of Jesus over our lives, his salvation for us. It's daily. Have you ever stopped and considered how often you need to hear the gospel? Is it not daily? Is it not hourly? Is it not minute by minute and second by second? How many sins have you committed since I started talking? Do we not need the gospel incessantly, relentlessly? There must be a daily dose of grace. This is why family worship is so important. Because these little disciples who have been marked with baptism to begin their journey in Christ need a daily dose of grace. And so do mom and dad. And so do us who do not have children. There is no one in this room and no one at home on the internet who does not need a daily dose of grace. Who does not need time in the word and in prayer every day. My friends, if you have to work 39 hours a week, I don't care. Worship Jesus every day. If you have to sleep seven hours a night, that's okay. Worship Jesus every day. I humbly suggest there are other things you can cut first. Cut them and worship Jesus every day. We need grace every day. We as disciples, baptized into a new life in the Spirit, we need daily teaching and encouragement in Christ. But we also need it to endure. He's there for two years, indeed three years. And he's just gotten started, hasn't he? How long does it take to make an adult? It's at least 18 years. Two decades at least. If you're in a Hebrew culture in the Old Testament, it takes 30 years. Because as every newlywed knows, they don't have a clue what to do. As every new parent knows, they don't have a clue what to do. And just because you're in your 20s and married with kids doesn't mean you've actually grown up yet. My friends, discipleship must endure. We must teach daily and for decades. We must persist 
in lovingly applying the truths of the gospel to one another and calling forth kingdom truth. But Paul is committed, even as Christ is committed, that disciples should not only be marked with baptism for their following of Christ and should not only receive the instruction of Christ daily and enduringly, but that they should also then experience the kingdom power. There must be a real taste of kingdom work in our lives. Notice verses 11 and 12. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and evil spirits went out of them. Not only does Paul teach the kingdom of God, Paul expresses the kingdom of God. Paul demonstrates the kingdom of God. There is healing for the sick. There is healing for the spiritually depressed, for those oppressed in the spirit. Both in the flesh and in the spirit, there is real evidence of the power of Christ to save. Now notice that Luke very wisely and cleverly referred to these in verse 11 as unusual. Do you see that? In your ESV, it says even better, extraordinary. Can you guys tell me what it means that these things are unusual and extraordinary? It means that we don't expect to see them. Not normally. Instead, what we would normally see is God working among us with true healing that climaxes in the resurrection. Jesus is at work in our bodies, bringing about true healing. And we may experience that from time to time, but we only experience it ultimately in the resurrection from the dead. In like manner, Jesus is truly at work in our spirits, bringing true healing to our hearts to our minds, to our souls, but ultimately it will be fulfilled and expressed in the resurrection from the dead. And so there must be a tremendous patience from us. There was this extraordinary and unusual expression of power. Ours today is an ordinary and usual expression of power. Do you want, do you want me to illustrate it for you? A baby got wet and the world changed forever. It's so ordinary. It's so normal. Babies get wet all the time. They get themselves wet. And yet, in this small act, the kingdom grew. Yet in this small act, the Spirit of Christ works in us as the church of Christ to know the love of Christ, to be sure of the grace of Christ. How usual this sweet miracle is. How ordinary this glorious work of God in the sacraments, in the word, in the prayer, in the fellowship of the saints. Ordinary means of grace, yet extraordinary power of God. At work in us. My friends, the hands of healing are among us. They are among us in ordinary ways. In the way we love each other. In the way we pray for each other. Aragorn, you recall, was known to be the king. 
because he had the hands of a healer. This world will know we have a king. This world will know that our king, Christ, is the king when they see the healing hands of Christ at work in our lives. When they see the means of grace building us up in our joy and our affection for one another. This is discipleship. That we should walk together in love and service that brings true healing. Patiently, slowly, with hope in the resurrection. We are marked in our baptism for this life. What Dietrich Bonhoeffer called this life together. And it is in such unity and in such fellowship that healing and the healing hands of Christ are expressed to the world. But my friends, these extraordinary gifts of God, the baptism that begins our discipleship, the instruction that builds up our discipleship, the work of God in kingdom power among us as believers, these things work only by the faith that we exercise in Christ. Let us be clear. Emmett's baptism is no better than a bath if there is not faith in Jesus Christ. My friends, let us be clear. The Lord's Supper is no better than a snack if you do not take it in Jesus Christ with faith. Indeed, my friends, we can go a little farther. They are, in fact, a curse if not received with faith in Jesus Christ. We see this in the next part of our text. This strange and peculiar story in which verses 11 through 16, Luke recounts for us how Paul was going about doing these miracles. And in verse 13, some itinerant Jewish exorcists decide to join the fun. How many of you know some itinerant Jewish exorcists? This was actually a very common thing at the time. And almost everyone in Ephesus would have known a few of their favorite itinerant Jewish exorcists. They are snake oil salesmen. They are charlatans. They were frauds who would go about and pretend to cast out demons, which is a lot easier than casting out diseases because it's a little harder to know if the demon's there or not. But they would get rich doing this. It was a game that they would play. And they suddenly discovered that there was competition in town that was a lot better than they were. Paul didn't even have to be in the room. They could use his handkerchief. Paul could pull out of his coat pocket. This would be a great time for me to have one of those little vest squares. Could pull out his little handkerchief, rub it on the back of his hand and hand it to them and someone would get healed. And the itinerant Jewish exorcists were like, this is a gold mine. Seven of them, sons of Sceva, these charlatans, these hucksters, go up to a man possessed with an evil spirit. And they say, I command you to come out of him in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. In this line, they very intentionally distance themselves from Jesus. They don't claim Jesus as the one they believe in. They don't claim Jesus as the one they're trusting, as the one they're preaching. No, they say, Jesus whom Paul preaches, and the demon is not fooled. He rightly identifies the divide. 
He says, Jesus I know. Paul I know. Who are you? I know Jesus. He's full of the Holy Spirit. I know Paul. He's full of the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you, I know them and I tremble. But you? You seven? You sons of Sceva? There's no Holy Spirit in you. Notice Luke's words. He masters them. He overpowers them. He casts them out. What a tremendous contrast to Jesus, who in Mark chapter 5 on the shore of Galilee looked at a man possessed by a legion of demons. Roman scholars, how many is in a legion? 10,000. Jesus stood toe-to-toe with 10,000 demons, and at the nod of his head, they cast themselves out. One guy, full of the Holy Spirit, with the nod of his head, cast out, mastered, overpowered 10,000 demons. By contrast, one man with one demon overpowered and mastered seven men with no Holy Spirit. My friends, this is a fight you cannot win without Christ. There is a spiritual warfare in this world in which you cannot triumph unless you have the Spirit of Christ in you. This is the gospel for us. That we as disciples should have within us the Holy Spirit, the Sovereign Spirit, the Almighty Spirit, who overcomes all the powers of darkness and lays waste all the kingdoms of this world. That we can pray boldly, Father, Your kingdom come. Do you guys have Westminster Shorter Catechism 102 memorized? Take a little time this afternoon. You don't have to memorize it, but go read it. Catechism, Shorter Catechism, Westminster 102. What do we pray for in the second petition? Your kingdom come. We pray that Satan's kingdom would be destroyed. We pray that the kingdom of grace would be advanced, that we and others would be brought into it and kept in it. We pray that the kingdom of glory would hasten and come quickly. What a prayer. What a great prayer to believe in the Holy Spirit and His power to make of us new life, new creatures, to bring us into a new kingdom under Christ, to make of this world a new heavens and a new earth. My friends, we are in Christ's spirit new creatures. It begins with our baptism. It's built up with the teaching of Scripture. It's evidenced in the work of the Spirit. It is received only by faith. But not a faith that is alone. It is a faith alone that works. Our baptism, our teaching... And our experience of the kingdom are effective for salvation only by faith. But this faith is not alone. Notice the end of our passage. Verse 17, this became known to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. 
And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Saving faith has with it true repentance. If we are to follow Christ, if we are to be true disciples of Jesus, to mimic him, to copy him, then we must practice repentance. To our faith, we must express our faith with repentance. This is what we see here. Notice the the component parts, as it were, of true saving faith expressed in repentance. First, in verse 17, fear falls upon them and they extol or magnify the name of Jesus Christ. Their hearts are filled with fear, but it's not the fear that sends them away from God. It's the fear that brings them to God. It's the fear that brings them to worship God. Secondly, notice that they confess their deeds. Genuine sorrow for sin brings forth a genuine acknowledgement of sin. They confess their secrets and their deeds. They bring to light the hidden sins of their heart. This is repentance. It begins with an awe and a fear of God. And it works within us a desire to be revealed and to speak the truth in love. This is discipleship. That we should, beginning with our baptism, built up in the teaching of the gospel, expressed in kingdom power, believe in Jesus Christ, and make known our sin. And humbly say, I'm not afraid anymore. I won't hide in the shadows anymore. No, I will come and I will confess the truth. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Notice also in verse 19, very dramatically, they burn their books. Do you remember when Cortez, not do you remember in the sense that you were there? Do you remember in the sense that you've studied history, that Cortez came to South America in his ships? All his men came down the gangplank, bearing all the burdens in the ships. They stacked the food, the clothing, the weapons everything they had brought on the beach. The ships were just empty hulls resting at tide. And Cortez lit them on fire. We're never going back. Have you seen the video from South Sudan? Where our brothers and sisters in the RP Church of South Sudan bring out their wooden idols and drop them in the courtyard and light them on fire. We're never going back. My friends, what sins slumber in your heart? Bring them out and burn them. My friends, what idols linger in the depths of your soul? Bring them out and burn them. This is discipleship. That we should embrace the true identity marked for us in baptism. It is not me. It is Christ in me. That we should embrace the gospel we hear in the teaching of the word. I am not my own. I am Christ's. 
that we should embrace the power of the kingdom and say, I will walk in the light and I will walk in the truth and I will walk in the way. I will be Christ's and he will be mine. And we bring out our sins and we bring out our idols. We confess them and we burn them. And we live in the old life no longer. The old is gone. The new has come. This is walking with Christ. This is the discipleship to which you are called in the waters of baptism. Notice in verse 19, they count up the value of it. 50,000 pieces of silver. A few of my more mathematically inclined children, you know that they don't get that from me, started doing some math. If you figure one piece of silver for a day's earning, if you figure 30 pieces of silver for the sale of Christ, you come up with over a century of earnings. We tried to translate it into Cambridge dollars, and we estimate that it's around $7 million. They are never going back. Because that's what baptism means. You are dead to sin, but alive to God. There is no life to go back to. It was crucified with Christ. There is no sin to go back to. It was buried with Christ. At any price or at any cost, that whole life is gone. There is no expense too great to walk away from sin and to walk in the shadow of Christ. And so in the absence, in the vacuum of that sin, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed as the book's were burned, so the book of God grew. As we, my friends, put off the sin, put off the old self, as we relentlessly and ruthlessly confess and burn our idols, we then embrace the word of God. Repentance is not merely getting rid of sin. It is also filling up with Christ. This is a fullness that you must not need to seek, but recognize that you have already found in Christ. It is there in Him, the fullness of love and of grace and of peace. Following Jesus means seeking to be like the one you already possess, seeking to express the righteousness you have already obtained, seeking to live in the holiness that has already been robed upon you, this is the fullness of the gospel expressed in discipleship in which we look at one another and say to each other, will you please be who you are? A new creation in Christ Jesus. Something new by His power. So we start and end in the same place. The water is gone. The words have vanished into the air. But the sovereign summons to spend a lifetime walking after Jesus endures. And all you who have received the waters of baptism, this is the glorious and beautiful burden 
that is light and easy and yours to carry. Jesus' spirit gives you new life. So follow Jesus. Jesus' spirit gives you new life. So follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks that indeed there is such treasure for us in Christ. That he has marked us in our baptism as his own. That he has built us up by the teaching of his word. That he has expressed in our lives true healing and the power of the kingdom yet to come. That he has worked saving faith in us. And is yet working repentance out from us. We pray, Father, that we would rejoice in these things. And practice them faithfully. This day and this week. That we might be persuaded that the things we have heard this morning. Are indeed the will of God for our salvation. And are indeed the things he works in us by the power of his spirit. Thank you, Father, for this good word. Apply it to us by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.